you enjoy listening to how Christ has impacted us in this episode. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We live in an age of a lot of trash talking, a lot of criticism. We live in an age where uh, people are attacked and their careers often are ruined by comments on social media. Uh, We are seeing increasingly where just someone from a biblical position makes a statement and their account is being taken off of uh, Twitter or other social media because of what they said was deemed inappropriate. We're in in an age where often, though, as believers, we're often attacking each other. And yesterday, uh, Babylon B, the satire site, ran a cute little piece. They said, um, harsh, uh, a Christian, judgmental Christian judges others for being judgmental. And I think that's, uh, <laughs> I've seen that happen. It was supposed to be a satire piece, but I've actually seen that happen. Harsh, judgmental Christian judges others for being too judgmental. We've gotten into an age where as Christians, we've almost become, uh, um, especially in social media, arrogant, condescending we think that a fruit of the Spirit is winning an argument. You know? And uh, so we've lost our perspective also on what salvation has come to mean for us. And uh, there's a young theologian named Dane Ortland. Um, his father pastors up in Nashville, and he has some cute things that he writes. And he wrote this uh, yesterday, and I thought it was really good. He said, an arrogant or a condescending Christian is like a trash-talking my two brothers. He has two other brothers. In other words, an arrogant Christian is like me trash-talking my two brothers after beating them in a game of two-on-two basketball when they had to play blindfolded while hopping on one foot and my teammate was LeBron James. I didn't score any baskets. In fact, I never touched the ball. Well, when the one time I did, I dribbled it off my foot and the ball went out of bounds. In fact, LeBron would have been better off without me and would have been able to play faster. Sure, I won, my team won, but I had absolutely positively and in other ways nothing to do with it. My boasting in the victory ought to have melted into gratitude to LeBron and humility at my failure to contribute to the game. And I think that's sometimes where we need to remind ourselves that everything that we've received in Christ has come to us through grace and weakness. My son is given. 
was a gift. There's nothing we earned and nothing we achieved, nothing we put together to make it happen. Tomorrow, someone may hand you, or the next day, a gift. And the appropriate thing to do is receive it and say thank you. You didn't buy it. You didn't build it. You didn't make it happen. Someone other graciousness and kindness gave you a gift. God, in his ultimate love for us, in his, gratitude, in his graciousness to us, has given us a gift. And it's in his son. So let's look at Isaiah a little more and look at this gift, what it means to us, and how it transforms our lives and how it fulfills the, the, the spirit of Christmas that I hear so often on Hallmark Channel. Okay? Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Who's in distress here? Everyone that lives north of Jerusalem is in distress. Everyone that's lived in and around the Jordan, and Capernaum, Nazareth, that whole region has been run over by nations over and over again. They're on a royal highway where trade goes from all the way from Persia, Babylon, all the way across um, what we would today call Lebanon, and then through what we would call today Israel, all the way to Egypt and North Africa. Traders are running through, armies are running through, and that's where the northern kingdom, Israel, resided. And there they lived, being wiped out over and over again, and had been exiled in 722 B.C. But Isaiah, in his vision of glory, remember he's operating off Isaiah 6, where he's seen the king on his throne, and he's seen the holiness of God. He says that in this land, there will be no more gloom. We live in a land that's similar in gloom. Some of the Christian richness of our heritage within the United States is being wiped away one by one, law after law, attitude by attitude. And for many believers, this has become a, for American believers, become an age of gloom. But the Lord says there's no more gloom. For those who are in distress, in the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. This is the region where Jesus is going to be, uh, grow up in Nazareth. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea and along the Jordan. You folks, you've been so discouraged. You've had it come over you time and time again. The Lord says to you, no more gloom, no more sorrow, no more destruction. I'm doing a work. And this is what I'm going to do for you. Verse 2, a people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the shadow of death a light has dawned. You know, uh, I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon the other day, and he mentioned in Popular Science Magazine that there had been an article, I don't know what kind of scientist you have to be to want to do an article like this, but they did a study of what would happen to the earth if the sun went out. In other words, if the light went out, if everything was in total darkness, within 24 hours we would be at zero degrees. Okay, the whole world. Within 24 hours, we would be at minus 100 degrees. And within a year, we would be minus 500 degrees. When there's no light, everything becomes dark. Yet God says, the people walking in darkness, they've seen a great light. Of course, we know from our perspective, this light is the light of the world. In John chapter 1, the light has come among us. And he has shined forth. 
He's, those who have been living under this darkness of sin and gloom and despair, Jesus has come in our midst and taken away the darkness. And for Scripture, light always means victory or liberation. Darkness always means oppression. For a light has dawned. Isaiah's telling us 600 years before Christ that a light has dawned. And we, through God's blessing, live on the other side of that light. And we can know this light has dawned in the midst of us, taking away the shadow and the oppression of the evil one, of Satan, of death and sin. He has come in the midst of us. You, who has done this? Verse 3. You have done it. God has done it. You have done it. And if you want to, one of the things you want to notice in the text, that over and over again, it says, you have done this work. God has done this work. Not us, not them, but you. God has done this work for us. This whole passage is grace. This whole promise is grace. Nothing I've earned, nothing that I deserve, God has brought this blessing out of just his love for us. You have done this work. What has he done? Verse 3, he has enlarged the nation, he's increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. I think everyone who has heard him uh, loves him and enjoys his passion. And that's uh, Pastor Francis Chan, who's pastoring We Are Church in San Francisco. They're made up of uh, 20, about 25 home groups. And they only meet once a month as a whole church. And during the month, they meet like as uh, individual home churches. And they have two elders per home church. And when you go on his site about once a month, they will post that sermon where they gather all together as a whole community and minister. When you see his expression and his love and his passion, it just is contagious when you listen to him speak. And one of the things he has done is he took a two to three year tour of Asia and he visited underground Chinese churches. And some of you may have been noticing the news. I know on Fox News, there's a guy named John Starnes who writes about uh, religious freedom issues. Uh, you might have to catch him. Sometimes he's over in the corner, not in the gossip section in the front, but over in the corner. He writes about religious freedom issues, and he's been pointing out the persecution of believers that is being renewed in China. Well, one of the things that Francis Chan talks about when he goes to the Chinese church and visits them is he t- describes to them, he watches their face and watches what they suffer and what he always is struck by is their incredible joy. Their incredible joy at when someone comes to Christ. Their incredible joy in worship. I watched a video that would have had to have been a hundred people, maybe a hundred more, in a room half the size. There was no places to sit. You either sit or on the floor or stood. There was someone leading music with just a simple guitar and the pastor up front. And the joy just flowed out of the video. They didn't care whether they were cramped. They didn't care that it was hot. All they cared that Jesus was present. They had known him and they were with their fellow believers. They were joyful over how the church grows through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And that's what Isaiah is telling us. There's going to be a day when the Lord enlarges the nations, increases their joy, and everyone will rejoice in the harvest of what the Holy Spirit is doing, bringing people to Christ. And we know this is true in Revelation 9 because John tells us in his vision of eternity that someone from all the nations will be represented in heaven that have come to Christ and know the joy of the Lord. So Isaiah is seeing this vision. And he's seeing this in verse 4 in the day of Midian's defeat. What is he referring to? He's referring to Judge 7, Judges 7 in Gideon's great victory. And what was the victory? What did Gideon do? God continually cut down his army. Remember, he made it smaller and smaller. And then when they circled around the army that they were fighting, you remember how they won? With swords and tanks, bombers? No, they won by torches and breaking pots so that it would sound like there were more than there actually was. And what did the enemy do? They fled. Fled in fear because of God's presence. So Gideon's victory was a victory of weakness of trusting, of believing God's grace through his weakness. Isaiah wants to remind us that when Jesus brings the victory in our lives, we're just like Gideon, we're the least of the can of the least of the people. But he brings the victory to us and through us by just us being available in weakness. So in verse 4, in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar, of their shoulder, the bar across their shoulders. When you were a defeated army, the army that defeats you would put a yoke on you and use you like a slave. The Lord is saying, I'm defeating all slavery to sin and defeating all oppressors. Now, it's the three great enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, or actually five, the world, the flesh, sin, and death, and the devil. And in each and every situation, the cross has brought us victory over those oppressors. We can know in Jesus Christ that our oppression, our defeat, our slavery to sin has been broken and we can find victory and freedom in him. Every warrior's boot used in battle, verse 5, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. Ultimately, this person, this work of God, will ultimately bring the end of all conflict. In the new heavens and the new earth mentioned in Revelation, in the second coming of Christ, all things will be put to rights. And there'll be no more for military, no more budgets, for huge costs of F-35s and M1 Abrams tanks, trying to find new weapons that'll be faster, more precise, and kill more efficiently. All that'll be thrown away because Jesus will bring all things to rights. What the, uh, the Old Testament is pointing to a figure who will bring this about. And in, our language, in English, we call it Messiah. Messiah is promised. Messiah is the promised in Scripture. Messiah simply means anointed one. And in Greek, that's what the word Christ means. Sometimes we say Jesus Christ so much, it's like Jesus is the first name and Christ must be the last. Okay, but Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. He's anointed of God, been set aside by God to rule and reign. And we're in that time where he's establishing his kingdom and it's becoming and it's expanding and it's becoming full force. And then it will be completely concluded at the second coming of Christ. Those are your military history buffs. You can draw the analogy of D-Day. 
The Allies landed at the beaches of Normandy on June 6th. As, the, as all the divisions came pouring forth, some of you may have seen Seven Private Ryan or Band of Brothers see this huge amount of equipment and men and material coming into France. You know in your mind, if you're German, it's over. Okay? But they're going to still keep fighting even though they're retreating and going back and they launch a counteroffensive at the Battle of the Bulge, but ultimately D-Day is going to lead to VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. The incident being about a year and a half time in between for that army to bring its march to march and to have its effect on the land. Christ has come. The kingdom of God has come. And Jesus has said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They have landed the king has landed. He's establishing his kingdom and he's advancing. He's advancing by conquering men and women's hearts through the work of the cross, bringing forgiveness, transforming us from selfish people to people who love and sacrifice and lay down our lives for him and for others. And that kingdom is advancing across the world. And ultimately that kingdom will be totally victorious at the second coming of Jesus. Messiah is the one who will do this, and he's the one in the Old Testament that this is, being, this is pointing to. So the Messiah is the anointed one who rules and reigns, in the, who's being predicted in the Old Testament. He's a king because he rules and reigns. He's a priest because he intercedes for his people in their sin. He's a prophet because he speaks God's word to us. So the people were looking for Messiah, and in Jesus Christ we know he fulfills these verses. Matthew 4, he fulfills the verse that the people who are walking in darkness will see the great light. And Isaiah, all of Isaiah 9 is what we're going to see is a beautiful prediction of what Jesus will look like when he comes born of the Virgin Mary. Verse 6, for to us, nothing more beautiful words when you hear them in a Christmas carol, is there? For to us, a child is born. So how is God going to bring this great victory through a child? Counterintuitive, isn't it? And where is he going to be born? In the land of Naphtali and Zebulun. Where? Who? Philip said to Nathaniel, who is this Messiah? And he said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel said in chapter 1 of John, what good comes from Nazareth? So you're telling me a child that's going to be born is not coming from Rome. He's not coming from Jerusalem. He's coming from absolute obscurity, as Tim Keller calls it, Podunkville. Okay. Okay. You're telling me this child's going to be born, and it's not going to be in Jerusalem. It's not going to be a military. It's not going to be with fine clothes in a beautiful palace. It's going to be in little country poor obscurity, some of the poorest area in the world. And he's not coming as a military conqueror. He's coming as a child. And he's coming and he's born. And he's fully human. And he has this child being born to us in verse 6. He's being given to us. Remember, a gift is to be received. You can't be arrogant if everything that's being done for you is being given to you. Because you know you don't deserve it. This victory, this oppression, this light, this freedom, this forgiveness 
It's a gift, and God's doing it all. A son is given, and what will happen? The government will be on his shoulders. What's the old expression? Uh, heavy is the crown. What's it? Is it? Uh, I have it noted here somewhere. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. I think that maybe comes out of Shakespeare. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. In other words, all that responsibility is on you. And he gets really old really fast, doesn't it? It gets tiring. I always find it fascinating to watch, look at uh, presidential history, history, see a picture of a president on his first day of office, and then see a picture of a president as he's leaving, whether it be after four years or after eight years. And you see the creases, and you see the darkness in their eyes, you see the thinning hair and the gray and the white, no matter their age. You see the pressure I just finished a biography of Abraham Lincoln called Redeemer President. It's just a wonderful book written by a Christian author, Alan Guelzo, who's a professor at Gettysburg College. And there's descriptions in there of from people who who were who before right before Lincoln was assassinated saw his appearance. The war had just ended, and they looked at him and saw people who knew him in Illinois then saw him again and looked at the deterioration of him physically because of the pressure and the struggle of leading the country through civil war. It wore him out. I read a biography of Kennedy, and if Kennedy had not been shot, there's a good chance he would have been reelected probably and died in office of a heart attack. Okay? The medical figures that have come forth as his cholesterol counts and his triglycerides, all those of you who are my age are keeping up with those things, okay, they're out the roof. Okay? The wear and tear of office on a man's body. But what will happen with this Messiah? The government will be on his shoulders and he won't wear out. The hair doesn't thin. The face doesn't crease. The pressures don't get to him. He forever rules. And he can carry the burden. And he can rule and reign in our hearts. And he can handle the pressure. The government's on his shoulders. And these are wonderful descriptions. I think Amy Grant wrote a wonderful, him, her and Michael W. Smith wrote a wonderful song with these words. He will be called this Messiah figure, this child that's born, this one that will come upon us and make all things right, he will be called a wonderful counselor. What does that mean? That means the best ideas, the best strategies for life, the best way to walk with him in your life, no matter what age you are, he's the best person who can give you the best advice, the best strategy for getting through life. He's a counselor. He will lead and guide and direct you personally. And it will be wonderful. And the benefit of that is there's no confusion. If he's the wonderful counselor, I, you know, you've been to, some of you probably been to counselors, I'm sure. You've been to, there's good and bad counselors, just like there's good and bad doctors and good and bad lawyers. Okay, you go to one counselor and you think, what? You know, <laughs> you know you're confused after they give you advice. Okay? There's no confusion with this wonderful counselor. And so what do you do? You make a commitment in your heart. I will follow Jesus wherever he goes because he will never mislead me. Two, 
He's now the mighty God. What, what did you say? A, a mighty God? A child born in obscurity is fully God? I can't imagine when Isaiah gave this prophecy and it's first written on a scroll what their thoughts were. How do you get that? How can this child be a mighty God? But so apparent to us, Jesus is fully God and fully human in one person and will be so forever, reigning at God's right hand. We can't entirely explain this mystery, but we know it to be true. There's two natures in one person. Before the Jewish rabbi who's reading this, who hasn't seen this full revelation yet, how could this be? He's a mighty God. That means he defeats all our enemies, his and ours. As I mentioned earlier, the world, the flesh, sin, death, and the devil, he wins. As a result of following him, there's no chaos. No chaos, no confusion. You've been in rooms where people have, there is a conflict going on. Yelling and screaming, and you can't figure out what people want and who's offended for what, and you don't know what to do next. How do we fix this? It's just chaos. With Jesus, there's none because he's the mighty God. He can handle every problem, deal with every situation, and he's mighty so he can fix it. It's one thing for me, I, you know, I see these uh, little pundits on TV, they can describe the problem, but they never can give a solution. The Lord gives the solution, and he can not only give the solution, he can make the solution happen because he's mighty. He's the mighty God. So what is our response to him? We follow him if he's a wonderful counselor, so we rest in him if he's the mighty God. If he can handle all our situations, and he's mighty enough to do it, and he's fully God and powerful enough to make it happen, then we can rest in him. Number three, he's the everlasting father. Now, this reference to Father here is not a reference to the first person of the Trinity. It's a reference to fatherly character. He loves us infinitely and guides us personally. Nothing like the Father's advice, is there? Oh, dear Dad, I'm confused. You give me advice. Or someone who is a father-like person you look to for guidance and help in your life. But he's our everlasting father. Many of us have lost our fathers. But he's everlasting. We never lose this father who's found in Jesus Christ. He loves us. He's infinite. He guides us purposefully. Therefore, if he's everlasting, there's low limitations on his ministry. You know, I listen to... Uh, different Christian podcasts during the week and lately on some of these podcasts they do like what the uh, I guess the Oscars do they'll do a little in memoriam and go through a list of all the folks who have passed away you know Christian leaders that were respected or had built ministries or at one time led churches or were missionaries on the mission field that sacrificed so much to see the gospel advance and you listen to those names and sometimes you think how can we go on without them Billy Graham how can we go on those of us, who, of us who drew grew up in that generation and those crusades and watched with tears pouring down our face, watching people come forward at an altar call and yield their life to Christ. 
You know, George Beverly Shea, how can you go on? But you can go on because you have an everlasting Father who will never die, who will never end. His ministry never ceases and He will always lead, lead and love you. So if we, so we have no limitations. So as Wonderful Counselor, there's no confusion. As Mighty God, there's no chaos. As Everlasting Father, there's no limitations. And so what's our response? Enjoy Him. Enjoy Him. That's what the verses before were telling us. In the day of Midian's defeat, their joy increased in verse 3. They rejoiced at the harvest, as, rejoiced in God as they rejoiced at the harvest. Enjoy the Lord. Sometimes we can get weighted down by grief and the struggles that we bear. And I, and I have to remind myself, this is about being joyful in God. There's nothing that should keep me from enjoying Him for what He's done for me in being my everlasting Father. I've had, we've had struggles in my family's life with depression. There's been generations of it. Okay? There's a generational thing going on. My family, aunts, grandfather, and sometimes it can weigh on you. But in the midst of that, you can find an everlasting Father in Lord Jesus Christ who will encourage me. He understands my grief, understands my depression, understands my sorrow. He doesn't condemn, He loves, He heals, He ministers, He gives grace, and then I am renewed. I find my joy. We find our joy in Him. Even in our loss, even in our struggle, He is our everlasting Father. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and number four, Prince of Peace. Peace is a wonderful thing, isn't it? We've experienced it for a long time in this country. It has been fighting on our soil since the 1860s. We don't know what it's like to walk, uh, to 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 go into the basement and hear bombs dropping, come out and see our home gone and see the entire city leveled. One of my uh, favorite preachers of old, a German preacher named Helmut Tillicke, bombs started dropping on the cathedral in Bonn where they were ministering. They started running the allies. They started taking the congregation and running them into shelters. The last person in was the organist, and she was trying to close the door. And the bomb, gone. We've never felt that kind of loss in our country. We've endured a great deal of peace. Other people have, people have gone to Vietnam, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Germany and Japan, and fought on our behalf. We have much to be grateful for. But Jesus has brought an even greater peace. The peace of the turmoil that stirs up in our hearts. Because we know we long for an intimate relationship with God. And we know we're not right with Him. And when we look to Christ in faith, we know that He will forgive our sins. That He gives us His righteousness and that we're reconciled and made right with God. In Romans 5.1, Paul tells us that we're at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us this peace. 
In Hebrew, it's called shalom. It doesn't mean just a personal psychological peace, but it means to make all things right and to establish whose rule and reign of peace. The Bible tells us we have peace with God in Romans 5.1, peace with others through Ephesians 2.14. We enjoy, can enjoy his peace personally, Isaiah 26.3, and we can walk in a peace that passes all understanding in Philippians 4.7. Jesus is that peace. Peace is a person. I appreciate it in all of these Christmas shows that are on that you're longing for world peace. But the prophecy in Luke is about the peace that... The peace comes to those who believe and trust in Christ. He's the Prince of Peace. So he's our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. And as Prince of Peace, he will make all things right. He restores, he reconciles, and he revives. Therefore, with him, there's no conflict. And my response is to walk in the peace that's the fruit of faith. I trust him, love him, allow him to live in and through me. His peace pervades our lives. Peace in Christ. This is who we adore on Christmas Day. This is the Messiah that's gone. He's the one that the Son, he's the Son that's been given. Fully God and fully man in one person, setting all things to right, who can then live in us and give us all the benefits of his work on the cross and his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. And again, how did we get it? Did we make it happen? Did we earn it? Did we figure this out on our own? No, we received it as a gift. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. That's the condition of being the Messiah. And over his kingdom, establishing and upholding with justice and righteousness from that day, time, and forever. Once he's established, his kingdom will never end. Many of us had favorite presidents. If you're old enough, you'll have lived under several. I have to admit my personal favorite was Reagan. And it was a sad day when he departed office. Of course, his health was deteriorating and it was probably for the best, but his Rule and reign ended. His administration ended. But for Jesus, the justice and the righteousness from that time forward and forever never ends. It never runs out. I was reading recently about <clears throat> Harry Truman and how little Roosevelt had told him. Remember, Roosevelt was elected four times. This is why we now have a law to only have two terms. He died in the beginning of his fourth term and everything was handed to the senator from Missouri that Roosevelt barely knew. He was a compromised candidate because the other candidate, vice presidential candidates, were probably too liberal, and they thought that more people would like Truman. He didn't seem that intimidating. And so they would eat lunch once a week, and Roosevelt shared nothing with him. He didn't know there was an atomic bomb. First day in office, two men from the security Services back then, walked in and put something on his desk. says, Manhattan Project. We've developed this bomb that may take away a whole city. Now you're responsible for deciding how to use it. Can you imagine the weight? But a lot of people cried. <clears throat> there was a national mourning as Roosevelt died. We saw a great national mourning in the last few weeks with George W. Bush. Can you imagine what impact it would have had if Roosevelt was the only president you had ever known? 
How unstabilizing that is. Destabilizing that is. Jesus will reign on God, David's throne, and over his kingdom, establishing justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. We never have to worry about our Messiah, our ruler, and our king dying on us, disappearing on us, bowing out on us. We can always trust him. What incredible work that God has done in bringing forth the Messiah, bringing this babe in this obscure these obscure towns, Bethlehem and Nazareth, doing this mighty work through weakness and grace. And all we're asked to do is receive it. And how was this work done? Because you're really good and God really liked you? No, because we were really needy and we needed a gift because we were desperate. And who did this work? This last sentence is the best one. Verse 7. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's God's passionate purpose and his desire and his passion to make this want this to happen in your life. You're a Christian today because in the zeal of the Lord, he pursued you. In the zeal of the Lord, he saw your neediness. In the zeal of the Lord, he made Christ known to you. In the zeal of the Lord, he gave you the grace to say, Yes, Lord, I want you. I need you. I need a mighty God. I need a wonderful counselor. I need peace. I need your forgiveness. I want to be right with you. So as we celebrate today and Christmas Eve tomorrow and, and a wonderful time okay, on Tuesday, with our families and friends, we remember for it to us, a child was born in obscurity. And he came in fully, fully as God to set us free from our sin and make us, bring us into a right relationship with him. And we're reminded again that it was all of grace. It was all out of weakness that he has come and done this for us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we find out today through Isaiah 9, the spirit of Christmas, that the zeal of the Lord has come and he has given us this child and this child has been born fully God and fully human and he's fully capable of saving us from our sin. Lord, first of all, we say thank you this morning. Thank you that in our weakness, in our struggle, in our defeat, that you came to us and offered this great gift. Lord, help us, remind us, Today, especially in these next two days, what a wonderful gift you have given us in our Lord Jesus Christ. In your blessed name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Lamb of God podcast.